0: Hello and welcome to this special election week episode of A World to Win. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I speak to Brianna Joy Gray, Bernie's former press secretary and host of the Bad Faith podcast, and Matt Karp, Jacobin Contributing Editor and Associate Professor at Princeton University. As the results rolled in throughout the day on Wednesday the 4th of November, we discussed why Biden's massive landslide victory failed to materialise and how the election results should shape the strategy of the US left in the years to come. We usually do a special cut for our patrons, but as this is a special episode and editing time has been somewhat limited, you've got access to the full episode this week. But if you want to listen to the hour-long versions of my interviews with incredible guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, then sign up to become a patron today. If you want to support the show in another way, please do give us a rating on iTunes to keep us in the charts. And share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. A big thank you to the Lipman Miliband Trust for awarding us the grant funding we've needed to bring you these first episodes. You can follow them on Twitter at Lipman Milliband. And another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers, who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. Enjoy this week's election special, and remember that the fight is just beginning. Hello, Brianna Joy Gray, and thank you so much for joining me on A World to Win. Thank you for having me. It's been a long time waiting. Yeah, it's it's great to have you on the show. So yeah, I mean, as me and Brianna are talking, we're still getting results in from a bunch of different states, although it looks as though Joe Biden is kind of going to scrape over the line. So what is the mood like over there, Brianna? And um, to what extent are we in a situation that you and many others could have predicted? Yeah, well, it depends on who you are,
1: right, with respect to the mood. All of the folks that were called upon as experts to explain why the Democratic Party should run on a platform of nothing fundamentally changing at the most exigent moment uh, in American economic and medical history, Mm. recent history at least, are now struggling, scrambling to explain why it is that their super candidate who is supposed to be the most electable and best able to beat Trump, a quote-unquote malignant narcissist who the whole world understood needed to get out of the White House, why he is running in a race now where he's winning, but only by the skin of his teeth. And it's really frustrating, if you're a progressive, to watch them still cling to the same narratives that were wrong in 2016 that they failed to learn from and continue to try to put this narrow Win perhaps, but put 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 the um, broader losses of the night, the failure to regain the Senate, the the loss losses in the House, on the backs of progressives, even though there's no evidence that that's the case,
0: and even though progressives uh, in their individual races did very well last night. So presumably, what we're going to see now over the next couple of of, of weeks and days is. The kind of liberal establishment basically saying biden lost because he got called a socialist and that turned off a bunch of different voters in a bunch of different states now from just like you know uh, a fairly distant analysis you know from the other side of the atlantic what i can see is that 70 percent of people want medicare for all florida by a supermajority, delivers a £15 minimum wage. Oregon legalizes a bunch of drugs. A bunch of progressive candidates are elected, you know, with, like, no questions asked whatsoever. And yet, somehow, the media, like, the Democratic establishment are reading into this that Joe Biden was too left-wing, that people were kind of looking at these policies and thinking, oh, no, you know... He's going to deliver socialism. He's going to kind of take away our private medical care. How, just how is this this happening? Are they ever going to learn?
1: It's a monstrous kind of delusion that certain members of the American media live under. Look, they've got to justify the predictions and claims that they've been making for months. And I think that some of them, you know, were making arguments in good faith. I think they believed what they were selling. I think there's a kind of systems justification that has to go on when you spent your whole life believing that a better world isn't possible. If a candidate comes along and tells you it is, you either have to reckon with your failure to fight for more in the past, or you double down and you come up with excuses as to why what they're pitching couldn't possibly be genuinely viable. And in this country, we've spent longer than this, but at least the last four years since Bernie Sanders' last run, explaining why single payer will never, ever come to pass, you know, in the words of Hillary Clinton. Um, Why a $15 minimum wage is something that we should be having to fight and scrape for in this country when it really should be closer to a $22 minimum wage if it were keeping up with inflation. And no one asked the question why it is that all of this really easy stuff should be, it, it is so hard. Even Fox News last night was running polls showing overwhelming majorities of Americans supporting all of the basic social programs that the rest of the industrialized world enjoys. And somehow it's Democrats who are still out of the loop. And if you look at who comprises our media class, you have people like Anna Navarro being held up as an expert on Cuba, a right wing conservative, uh, an expert on Florida rather, a right wing conservative. You have one of our, our main quote unquote liberal pundits as George W. Bush's former comms person on MSNBC. It's really an outrageous state of affairs. Meanwhile, as you pointed out, never, ever, ever are progressives invited to comment on TV. Last night, there was such a rich panoply of opinions and takes, accurate predictions coming out of the left independent media from people like Katie Halper and Sam Cedar, and, you know, Myself, frankly, and these people, while we might occasionally be asked to give our commentary on Democracy Now! or other kind of independent media, you know, Al Jazeera maybe a vice. We're never, ever (laughs) invited on TV, and the most left voice that you have are people like Chris Hayes, who are also still struggling to figure out what possibly could have happened when many of us were ringing the alarm bell for a really long time. I also want to point out that one of the alarms that, you know, I personally have been concerned about for a while is the extent to which the Biden campaign thumbed his nose at black and brown voters who Democrats love to call and compliment as the base of the party during the primary season when they need to weaponize uh, more conservative voters against more progressive candidates who completely abandoned in the context of a general election, right? So you had the largest mass protests in American history rise up over the summer in response to police killings in our deeply racially inequitable criminal justice system. And what was the response? To push through the nomination of Joe Biden, who literally wrote the bill that caused us to have this deeply inflated mass incarceration state, you know, the largest incarcerated population per capita in the world. Mm. And then for him to go on in at the height of those protests to pick a woman self-identified as California's top cop to join the ticket, a woman who never could get any black voters in the general election, who Bernie Sanders routinely outpaced two to one with black voters, uh, who didn't win a single delegate. Right, had to drop out before her own state because she was pulling fourth behind Andrew Yang in California. This was the person who was supposed to sheepdog Black voters into the fold as they are experiencing this pandemic at a rate that's higher and more acute than other voters in this country. It's ridiculous. It's
0: malfeasance on a national level. There's something that I'm seeing kind of emerge among um, some of the, the kind of liberal commentary at the moment, which is quite concerning is people looking at Trump doing perhaps better than they expected amongst Latino voters, amongst um, African-American voters, and saying, these people, what are they doing? They're voting against their own interests. Like, I can't possibly understand, you know, where on earth these people are coming from. That seems just like a really, really destructive thing and actually something that's going to feed into the dynamics that led up to this election, which is basically half of America feeling like the professional managerial class looks down on them, thinks they're idiots, thinks they're racist, thinks they don't understand what they're doing and they don't know who they're voting for?
1: Yes. I mean, the party is doing what it knows how to do, which is – Vote shaming. Look, in a world where you don't know how to actually appeal to voters based on their material interests and offer them concrete plans that would change their life in the short term, in the real term, what can you do but castigate them for having the opinion they have? You can trace failures with various groups to various actions, right? Like Bernie Sanders didn't magically do so well with Latino voters. He did well in certain states like uh, Iowa and Nevada, where he just dominated with non-white voters, upwards of 70%, because he got to the state early. He did grassroots ground work, funneling money into setting up small events at at local soccer games and community events to have a long-term and deeply seated presence in the community. And they spent lots of money. On Spanish language ads and other ads, early in the state had people knocking doors, doing a ground game, getting invested with union leadership so that the Culinary Workers Union, even though it did not endorse Bernie Sanders, its membership did. Why? When asked repeatedly, well, they wanted... Basic social programs like Medicare for All. Latinos are the most underinsured group in the country. This is not an accident. This is not rocket science. But what did they do in Florida? As you pointed out, a $15 minimum wage won. Mm. But Joe Biden, even though he offered a $15 minimum wage, barely talked about it. He barely talked about it. Meanwhile, he he said that if Medicare for All passed the House and the Senate, meaning that even Republicans were on board. He would veto it in the middle of a health crisis, the likes of which this country hasn't seen at least in the modern era, right? We we have a state like Florida. I I was speaking to one of my colleagues from the campaign who's from Miami, and is her parents are from Venezuela, and you know they don't love the term socialism, but they supported Bernie Sanders, Mm. and none of the polls were getting at that deeper question. Even if you don't love the term socialism, would you vote for someone who offered X, Y, and Z? And I think that. The only option here, the only logical option here would be to try something different next time around and see if these progressive policies actually worked. But I have very, very, very little confidence the Democratic Party would ever consider that to be a viable option because the people who fund the Democratic Party explicitly picked Joe Biden as their nominee
0: because they, they knew that he would toe the corporate establishment line. It feels like that is what happened at this election, basically, that like Nate Silver was blowing so much smoke up Joe Biden's ass that he thought that the election's in the bag. All I have to do is like speak to my corporate donors, speak to big business and corporate America by saying nothing other than like Donald Trump is a mean guy and attempting to just ride to victory on the basis of that. It just seems like, yeah, they they have not learned any lessons about the, the kind of real crises that the that the country is facing. And just it just seems like there's a consistent tendency to take particular groups of voters for granted. And I mean, you know, you can see this oh, in yeah. the UK as well.
1: One of the most disturbing things I observed uh, before I went to sleep at dawn <laughs> is the uh, there's a, there's. A trend among the pundit class, including really disappointingly many members of the elite, Black media. Um, And by Black media, I mean Black commentators on Mm. mainstream media, because there's a real dearth of Black-focused news options um, in this country. There are some, but there should be a lot more. Where they started just blaming latino voters yeah comparing them to black voters like black voters are good people because they voted for democrats and latinos are bad people they need to clean house they need to figure out what's going on in their community and aren't black people great because they're so loyal to the party and for one it's an inaccurate assessment right because donald trump did better with every ethnic group this time around other than white men so he was down like five points with white mm. men, up four points with black men and black women because there was a lot of pre-election debate about black men failing black people and, oh, you know, 50 Cent and all, you know, a handful full of hip hop stars endorsed Trump. Other hip hop stars did not endorsed trump but were accused of doing so people like ice cube who simply raised the question of shouldn't the democratic party be doing more for black people and he was castigated he they did an snl skit last weekend where they made fun of him and put him in a maga hat even though again he never endorsed trump Mm. just blatantly lying about him because there's all of this fetishization of black voters as democratic voters yeah where the game has been aren't you proud to be a democratic voter because you're black, as opposed to, aren't you proud to be voting for a party that gives returns to a community that very badly needs them. Right. And so the people have taken this, the the team sport dynamic of voting to a really pathological degree where now there's this animus being directed at Latinos and it's like, Oh, they're not people of color anymore. Like it's true. There are Latino was in a racial group. And of course there are white Latinos in, yes, white Latinos tend to vote more like the rest of white Americans than non-white Latinos. But that's not a reason to start saying Latinos are bad <laughs> and adopting what really sounds like some bizarrely hateful rhetoric. Yeah, Whether or not it's white Latinos or white non-Latinos or black Americans or Asian Americans or anybody else, your job as a politician is to persuade people. Exactly. Thank what's you what's going on in their life. And offer positive prescriptions to remedy those harms. And Donald Trump, or whatever you want to say about him, is extremely good at identifying the harms and mm. naming an enemy. It's the wrong enemy. He does. He gives you a racist enemy. <laughs> you know. He exploits racial divisions and nationalism and QAnon and all these other kind of wacky things. But you know what you what you are fighting against when you yeah. vote for Trump. At least you believe you know and. Joe Biden I know that he was against Trump I I know that he was against Trump and some vague idea that the country is bad and we got to make the soul of the nation good again But even though there was some good stuff in his plan he didn't run on those things Yeah And even though he there was a lot of hand-wringing about how we got to save America because of the environment and we trust we got, we got to trust science. That argument was really undermined by the fact that the campaign slogan in the last month or two was, we're not going to ban fracking. Yeah. You know, the, the act which releases methane gas, which is much, much, has a much higher greenhouse effect than carbon into the atmosphere at crazy and, and kind of untracked rates, right? There's a whole, a lot of methane production that is going under and having a, a, a bizarre effect. A, a, a a outsized effect. You know, it's just, it's misses all around. And as I see the typical, the the usual subjects line up to left bash, all I can do is shake my head and, and say to the left, you gotta use this opportunity to message hard, message strong, and don't let them make you feel bad for saying I told you so, because in actuality, the fate of the nation and the future of the planet in many respects, when we're talking about climate change and our and our global leadership role there rest on them learning some really hard lessons that were obvious in 2016, which continue to be obvious, but certain members of the Democratic Party are being paid not to understand. Yeah.
0: I think that is the real point, right? Because a lot of us on the left kind of, you know, we go on Twitter, we pay credence to the arguments that are being made by these people. And, you know, they attack and attack and attack. And we say, no, these are the reasons that you're wrong. It's actually like, no, you're not going to, Beat them with arguments. They're not going to change their mind because they are being, they have a a direct material incentive to continue believing the things that they believe, even when, you know, their entire worldview has been blown out of the water like, you know, 10 times over, right? So, how do we actually change things? It's not by getting into these weird, just complete cul de sac (laughs) debates with these people who just engage with you in complete bad faith, the very (laughs) name of the podcast (laughs) that you are yourself doing. It's actually by building power, right? And that's what I want to talk about because, you know, I don't want this just to be a kind of, you know, us laying into the people that we are (laughs) really angry at, even though we have the right to be angry at them. Um, I want to think about where do we go next? And, you know, this was always going to be the conversation that we were having, regardless of how Biden won, was how do we make sure that he delivers on a climate plan? as or more ambitious than the one that he has? How do we make sure that, you know, people aren't going to be dying because of the evictions crisis, because of, because of the situation with the police in the US, because of the massive unemployment crisis that there is going to be and continue to be for, you know, many, many years to come because of the opioid epidemic. Like, yes. how are we going to actually organize? How is the US left? Um, and alongside, you know, alongside it, the UK left, also coming from the kind of, you know, from uh, a real position of defeat, going to get back in the game and force them to listen to us, even when they, you know, treat us with complete contempt?
1: Yeah, that's a really
0: good question. And I'm glad you
1: raised uh, the eviction crisis because not enough people, certainly not um, Joe Biden, were Mm. talking about the fact that 30 to 50 million people are facing eviction and eviction moratoriums are lifting all across the country. And that was an issue that was really prominent. Uh, we had interviewed three Pennsylvanians, a lo- local reporter, a local writer, and a local city councilwoman who won uh, uh, as a Green Party candidate about the state of play on the ground on Monday. And, you know, there are a lot of reports of disaffected Black voters in the state, which is why, you know, Democrats are really expecting the returns from Philadelphia to close the gap. And I'm certain that it will to a certain degree, but I think it won't as much as it could have if there had been more outreach in support of those black voters and other low-income voters in urban areas. But the question of what to do next, you know, this is really, really hard. And it's a question that I've been trying to ask in the lead up to the election. And there was a lot of pushback because any conversation about how to exert power was seen as a, an effort to undermine the outcome of this upcoming election, which is tacitly, is in some ways true, right? Um, but if even if I specifically framed it as, okay, if, if pretend everybody here is voting for Biden. What are we going to do to make sure we're not in this exact same position three years from now? You know, I famously, at least on this side of the pond, famously- No, to, I sort I, I to <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I, this, this was the question I put to him pretend everybody on this podcast is going to vote for uh, Biden. What do we do? Because this is, this is key. We, we know that protests don't work to push Biden. How do we know this? Because when Biden is at his most vulnerable, when he's running for office, right? He was running for office over the course of the summer. Mm. And we had the largest mass protest event in American history with literally millions tens of millions of people pouring out into the street Mm. to protest these extrajudicial police killings on camera in front of all of our eyes public sympathy was strongly with the protesters everyone wants to pretend that you know defund the police was this deeply unpopular thing no it was gaining in popularity and there was a lot of public sympathy with the protesters and even at that peak protest moment, what did Joe Biden do? He said, law and order, law and order. The yeah. whole DNC, uh, the Democratic National Convention, was about law and order. Very little like cursory lip service was given to the law suffered by the families uh, who, who were victimized by police violence. And then when it was time to pick a VP, he picked the woman who self-identifies as the top cop of the state. That has the second largest prison population in America, someone who was never able to get any black votes who Bernie Sanders, you know, outpaced two to one with black voters who had no grassroots support in the black community. She was supposed to be held out and tokenized as the reason why black people were going to vote for this candidate. It was it was outright disrespect. And then he goes and he punches left and criticizes young voters and obstinately says that he's not going to have to do anything and that he's a democratic party. Now I'm the democratic party. He says to, you know, claim, you know, requests from progressives and Mm. people who are asking him how close he is to Bernie Sanders and whether he would adopt any of those policies. So I I don't mean, I don't say that pessimistically. And I'm not saying that to say protesting doesn't work, but the level of kind of vitriol and panic that, I I received when I simply raised the idea of people wielding their power as voting blocks, the way that unions before this country deeply undermined our ability to unionize and and cut union participation by two-thirds the way that they have done over the last 40 years or so, the way that unions were able to exert political power through being able to deliver or withhold votes depending on various political concessions that were made. That's what some of these voting blocs need to start being able to do in America. And the fact that Black people are such a consistent collective block already should be a moment of opportunity for organizers that are are poised to capitalize on all of the well-founded angst in our community. We're, We're a canary in a coal mine. And I think we could be organized if Black figureheads were willing to be critical of the Black establishment, of the CBC, of the sheep herding that was done by Jim Clyburn, who insisted that we know Joe and he's the safe bet. These people need to be held accountable. And then we need to start proving to an electorate that they need to stop following the bad advice and the sheepdogging of, of the leadership who thinks that they will follow whoever happens to look like them. And you can see that, that, that kind of pattern being chipped away at slowly, slowly, but we can't, you know, we got to be ready to go two years from now. And we need to be able to, I think, coordinate the activists movements that are going on yeah, and pair them with the kind of electoral threat mm-hmm. that, block voting can pose I also think that look the progressives did well and we got a message I'm a comms person so my priority is thinking about how we're going to message 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 and claim this ground uh, that kind of victory for us and of course we need to keep running progressive candidates who are winning on progressive platforms and really making the case that that's how we can actually flip the Senate and that's how we can regain our losses in the house. But at the end of the day, this is a demoralizing moment. Yeah. Cause in the short term, you know, the die is cast and we have to figure out how to survive the next two years. At very least, even if Joe Biden wins, he is winning, you know, with a um, legislature and a Supreme court yeah. that is absolutely not going to help him pass even his milk toast agenda. And this, you know, and, and, they, and they held up a stimulus package for this. Americans aren't going to get any kind of relief, if at all, if ever, until January. Mm. People who can barely afford their houses are about to get stuck with hundreds of dollars of worth of heating bills. You know, half of our country is tundra. <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to be really bad. Yeah. And all of this as some kind of political maneuver, because it was presumed that Joe Biden was going to win. And it was presumed that he was going to have the support to pass whatever he wanted to pass in January. And it's the same kind of hubris that we saw from Hillary Clinton and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, RIP, who decided that they weren't going to step down. They were not going to secure reproductive rights for the women in this country, people with, you know, uh, reproductive an ovary in this country, a uterus in this country. Um, and instead, she wanted a woman to appoint her replacement. And so she waited, overconfident that, of course, it was her turn and Hillary was going to win. And Hillary posted that happy birthday to this future president picture of herself as a little girl a week or so be- uh, before the election. Yeah. She posted it again this year. I saw. Showing exactly how little she learned and how hubristic and vile and unconcerned with the fate of average Americans these people are. And here we are again. And if this lesson's going to be one, it's, it's going to be because we, you know, corporal punish it <laughs> into these people and just beat them like spoiled children. The, the, the time for sending to them, them to the corner to think about what they've done is over. Yeah. You've got to really, really push this message and beat this drum. And people are going to say that we're annoying and that we're turning the screw and being spoil sports and bad winners or bad losers or whatever. But I really, truly believe the fate of the future of this republic depends on us getting this message through these hard headed, petulant children that are dominating our media and political sphere.
0: I couldn't put it better myself. And, you know, if there's anything that the US left can learn, what's from what's gone on in the UK. It's just that there needs to be this strong anti-establishment leadership that is willing to take these people to account. You know, yeah. you've got the squad now, you've now got Cory Bush, you've got Jamal Bowman, you've got these yeah. incredible socialist Black leaders who can act as the kind of, you know, like you can spearhead this movement. Yeah. Um, and there is always a danger of being co-opted, of yes. kind of, you know, being sucked into... The democratic establishment and of using this time that we have until the next election, when who knows, Trump might run again the next time. Things are going to be infinitely worse in four years. You know, we'll have this like massive economic crisis. And as you said, people will be really, really suffering unless there is significant movement for these people who represent what socialists actually stand for and what working class people in the US actually want to say, we are not like those guys. This is what you know, we could have, Mm. then, you know, we're going to be in the same position all over again. It requires, as you said, having that backbone backbone. and being willing to stand up even when people are there, the centrists and the the liberals are there whining and moaning at you on Twitter and just being like, I don't care. I'm going to be annoying. I'm going to stand up for this because this matters.
1: Yeah, I I can do this. And I I talk to my mom about this all the time. We were talking about this at like 6 o'clock this morning, actually. She was waking up. I was not yet asleep. And, you know, I, I asked her because she's someone who has had more radical politics her whole life as well. And, you know, hadn't voted for a Democrat until Barack Obama because she felt like the Democratic Party never put up mm. viable candidates, candidates that reflected her values. She voted green, you know, and she was someone who when Bill Clinton won in 1992, you know, a lot of people joke about leaving the country. But she, she felt like the same kind of loss that a lot of people felt about Joe Biden, that he just doesn't represent progress, that we've just represented a Republican on the Democratic ticket. She actually did pick up our family. We moved, up, we moved overseas for the entire duration of the Clinton administration <laughs> from 1992 to 2001. You know? Amazing. So I never like, thought about that timing that way, but she was like, yeah, it was a big part of it, the feeling in the country. And so I asked her, why is it that we're not more afraid? Why is it that you and I you know, I don't think that I was born with any particular kind of courage or anything. I think it seems like I'm just saying what I think. I don't know what else to do other than to say what I think, mm. you know. And, you know, she. we were talking about, in part, being independently financed, you know, supporting myself on a podcast, not being beholden to whatever the producers at MSNBC say. That's a big part of it. You know, Crystal yeah. Ball, who has one of our most successful independent media shows, The Hill's Rising, talks about how the pressure she was under as an MSNBC correspondent in the lead up to 2016 and how, Mm. you know, her contract was not renewed and how she did feel very stymied. And in that, in that context, I think another part of it is that I'm not looking for a job in politics. I'm not someone who has a career in politics, I joined the Bernie campaign because I believed in Bernie Sanders. And Mm. when that was over, it's over. You know, Mm. and there there are a lot of people who screamed at me and said, you'll never work in this town again when I started tweeting after the campaign suspended. It was free to say what I felt. And me just saying I don't endorse Joe Biden was considered a capital offense for a lot of people in the industry. So I think that supporting independent media is really important and independent media outlets like the intercept play a huge role. It's one of the, they're, they're one of the only few places in the States, you know, in like the guardian, which like isn't American, <laughs> you know, like those are some of the few outlets that we will see like criticism of establishment politics and it's going to take the squad. It's going to be an enormously, uh, a real test of their metal, yeah. um, under extreme pressure to work within a system you know to keep calling folks out and some of them have demonstrated i think a real capacity to do that and i'm really looking forward to see what folks like Cory Bush do yeah who is a true outsider i mean if you think asc is an outsider you know cory bush was leading the ferguson protest was a nurse was homeless at a certain point in her life like I don't see her forgetting where she comes from Mm. anytime soon. And the fact that all of these squad members are, I think the moderates messed up, the corporate Dems messed up in lifting them up and celebrating them as these like cute, young brown things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For identity politics reasons, well, watch out because now you've taught America that they're good and they should be rooting for them. And I I don't doubt that they will try to undermine them, you know, the second they start to present a real threat to power, but it's going to be difficult. Because a whole generation of young women has fallen in love with these people, and I can't wait to see how that pans out. And um, I hope that they remain popular because they're going to have to rely on some un- untraditional grassroots, independent funding mechanisms to stay in office. Because they will be challenged, just like conservatives already tried to challenge AOC. Mm. People have shot their shot, <laughs> but it's going to get worse, and these challenges are going to start to to come from inside the house, as it were.
0: <laughs> yeah. We're gonna um, leave it there on that note, but I think it's a good note to leave it on because it reminds us all that yes, we need to go away and lick our wounds and like have a rest and chill out for a bit. But ultimately, we've got four years to fight and to get behind these people who are you know going to be leading our movement from the front and to to you know really support the people who are going to be on the on the front lines of what is going to be a really really intense crisis, and that has to be something that the US left, the UK left, leftist movements all around the world uh, after experiencing some really big defeats due together. So thank you very much, Brianna, for joining me on the show. It was great to have thank you on. Thank you. And thank you for everything that you're doing uh, on the other side of the, of the Atlantic. So Matt Carp thank you for joining me on this special episode of a world to win where we are discussing whilst watching the results roll in how are you doing
2: I'm making it my my 10 month old is just waving at me across the room so Oh
0: that's cute
2: That's something rays of sunshine <laughs> <laughs> But yeah it's uh, a <laughs> I mean it's been a it's been a it's been a wild ride here I, I was up till around one thirty, and then I slept about 3 hours and was kind of in the trenches. I mean, it's, it's funny. It's like, you know, it's, you know, for, you know, somebody on the sort of Sanders wing of, of the world here, you know, the the, the the Biden project is so obviously not our project in some mm. sense. And yet I had become really convinced that, you know, we really, you know, did, did strongly prefer a Biden victory. Yeah. for Or set the terrain going forward. So I've been pretty, um, you know, engaged in, 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 you know, nerding out over the counties and trying to figure things out and, it looks like it's not a great night for the Democrats, but I do think Biden is going to win at
0: this point. Yeah.
2: Um, we're, we're looking at what, what to do in a world where, um, you know, the Republicans are in the Senate. Biden has squeaked by with his, um, you know, college graduate, professional class, affluent suburbanite, you know, energized base. And the government's divided.
0: Yeah the feeling that I immediately come back to is the 2015 election in the UK when like I voted green. I was like, I'm on this anti austerity candidate. Like Ed Miliband was there promising austerity light. But when the results rolled in, I was there just like crying because I was like, this is just terrible.
2: I think it's so just. We do have a little bit of emotional distance. Like my mom was on the floor in tears last night. I hope, you know, if she's listening to this, she's not, uh, it's, it's not too painful to remember that. Um, but it's the same thing, the same gut punch. I was with Bosker, uh, Sankara at, mm. in 2016, and we were like, at, you know, I had been to this Chapo show, Chapo Trapout show. We were all just sort of laughing at the whole thing. And then when it was actually clear that, you know, Trump was going to win, you know, there was no ice cold reaction to that. Bosker no. was like up in front of the TV being like, Arizona, Arizona's coming through, but It didn't. Um, I think so. last night, you know, we got better news late, 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 late into the night so that we didn't face the catastrophe. But but yeah, it's sort of ambiguous what the what what the impact of all this will be.
0: So, I mean, you've kind of given us a bit of a, a bit of a hint there. But like, given that, yes, this, you know, hasn't been a great night for the Democrats, but it looks like Biden will probably scrape over the line. And also there have been some great Socialist candidates that have made it into Congress, people like Cory Bush. What is the mood like uh, on the left over there at the moment? To the extent that you can really guess that from you know being in your apartment and yeah, people not being able to hang out with each other for obvious reasons.
2: Exactly. It's true. It's a lot of a lot of feverish texting. I mean, I think um, there's a little bit of you know Schadenfreude that's happening to some extent with you mm-hmm. know people in, the, um, in Bernie world who say, okay, we handed you the reins you know, Joe Biden and Democratic establishment mm. and what have you done with it? You know, we, we want to say, you know, the truth is that um, and, and this is where I strongly agree with this analysis, that just simply naming, I think Dan Denver just tweeted this, but simply naming right wing evil for what it is and repeating that over and over again without offering anything except a sort of kind of a, a, a void, like almost an empty MacGuffin absence in in, in, in in response. You know, I guess it can win. of the vote from time to time, but it cannot provide, it doesn't, it seems so clear, this is another, uh, you know, piece of evidence that it can't provide anything like a coalition that can actually repudiate that evil or that can actually wrest the reins of real power away from those forces in in order to sort of assure that they do do not return. So, you know, Biden and Bidenism and kind of reclaiming the soul of America and, you know, wearing a mask, and, and being responsible and trusting science and um, being kind and you know the other kinds of you know in a sense sort of you know cultural values that mm-hmm. um, that, that the, the Democrats have really leaned into you know they, 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 they were enough in some sense to avoid catastrophe, but it just seems so clear that they're not enough to create a, a governing majority. you know a majority they can actually do anything like give people health care, raise wages, Guaranteed jobs, you know, any kind of structural redistribution that we desperately need in this outrageously unequal country, anything that can actually like address financialization, all the Mm -hmm. things that you write about, none of that stuff is going to happen with this in this environment.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that's another thing, which is that, yes, liberals will look back on the successes of their political ideology, you know, to the extent that there have been successes in the recent past and say, well, look, we did it before we can do it again. But there's a complete and utter failure, it seems to me, to understand the nature of the crisis that we're in and have been in since 2008 you know, liberal institutions that maybe work okay when the economy is ticking over and there aren't these really fierce battles over access to healthcare and resources and unemployment and evictions. Maybe you can adopt that strategy during those periods. But when you're facing a crisis as severe as this one, you know, when the average worker in purchasing power parity terms has the same wage as they did in 1970, when we've got this massive evictions crisis, this huge unemployment crisis, it just seems as though people actually want leadership and they want people who are going to lead based on an understanding of and a commitment to policies
2: yeah i mean it is true i was actually talking about this the other day you know like what is if you had one policy associated with with joe biden what would it be could you even necessarily name one? Trump's
0: mean that yeah the closest. I mean, it, yeah
2: it really is no different i mean or trump and trump's mean i think that was that was hillary i think biden added trump's mean and he's gonna get you sick or something mm. like that. You know, Trump's mean, and he blundered his way through the virus. And maybe that, you know, that was the, the combination of those two things was enough. But none of that really go, addresses, you know, any any of the issues that, you, that you're that you talking about. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's frustrating, because, you know, to a certain extent, liberal politics, I mean, and this has been the case since, I don't know, since the birth of post-war liberalism, in some sense, you know, you go back to Hannah Arendt, it's about Staving off the worst, mm. and that is for them. for For to, to a certain extent, for them, that is really all that they believe is possible, and they'd love to re- restrict the horizon to that. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think popular vote numbers are going to pop up, and it's going to look like a you know a moderate Biden win. Yeah, and I think we're you're going to see once you know the Democrats kind of collectively recover from their own personal trauma and pick themselves up off the floor, you're going to see a little bit of crowing about you know we staved off the worst. It was us. Who did it? You know, we arrested our, this slide into fascism. And that's really the choice that they want us to make is mm. between this sort of responsible nullity and chaos and ruin under a kind of, you know, totally reckless, irresponsible, hateful right. So-
0: and they will not accept the fact that, at least, you know, part of the reason that they have just about managed to stave off the worst is that bernie was out there despite the fact that he got fuck all from um biden basically saying to the left to people who had supported him go out there go and vote even though many of those people were like really really disillusioned and even as there was such an you know open goal in the middle of a pandemic 70 something percent of the population in that fox news poll supported something that looks like medicare for all and that wasn't even remotely on the cards that crowing just seems like it would be completely and utterly detached from reality.
2: Yeah, it's true. I mean, I mean, they set the terms. I mean, this is the thing. When you're the party, when you control the levers of power in the party and then also in the media, and I mean, you guys in the UK know this as well as anyone, yeah. you get to pick the terms of the fight you want to have, yeah. and then you can win or lose on those terms and set the narrative based on that. So they're picking the terms of responsibility. Um, restoring the soul of America, and then they win even super narrowly on those terms. You know, it doesn't matter that in Florida, you know, uh, 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 60% almost voted for $15 minimum wage. You know, even you had a lot of Trump voters, a lot of Trump $15 minimum wage voters in in Florida. Joe Biden never talked about that policy, which was more popular than Joe Biden. But it doesn't matter because we don't have, either in, in, in politics or in media, the power and the standing yet to say, hey, wait a minute, if you had run this campaign strictly on, Healthcare and wages, just literally mentioned nothing else. Basically, Mm -hmm. had not talked about manners once. You know, maybe you you know, you know. Imagine, imagine the 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 electoral vote outcome there. So, I don't know. It's frustrating because you can see the the outlines of the coalition we would want to build you know, in, in these, in these polling results and in some of these referendum results. But then when it actually comes to the fights that we actually do have and people actually vote on at the ballot box, it's never these issues. It's, it's much more the sort of, you know, do you believe in science? Um, Which is a thing that Democrats have been saying for years. And it's like, I don't think they realize how obnoxious that sounds to someone who, who, you know, who has a, you know, has a different view on a certain issue. I don't know.
0: And you're already seeing it on Twitter, right? Which is, you know, the kind of exact thing that liberals would always accuse the left of doing, which is blaming people who don't vote for you for not voting for you. Um, So like, you know, the reason that this is happening is because America is uniquely a appalling country where all of these uneducated people who don't understand their own interests are going ahead and and voting for Trump. And it just seems like they're refusing... Every single time they are being taught this lesson, they are refusing to learn that speaking down to people, that ignoring people's preferences when it comes to policy, that, you know, treating people who have different views to them, particularly people who are, you know, working class and have different views to them as idiots or as evil, is the worst possible way to go about politics.
2: And the the, the really tragic bit for our part is, I mean, as we you have these like Pygmalions who are sculpting the, you know, the, the electorate that they want. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Because we're kind of in coalition with them, you know, in in, in, in especially in, you know, now um, your Labour Party and in Starmer's Labour Party and Joe Biden's Democratic Party, we kind of get tagged with them, too. And I think mm. it's, it's a real problem for the Sanders post Sanders post Corbyn left. That we kind of even if we do have some policies that we want we can throw out and people will say yes yeah. I want this minimum wage I want this you know infrastructure spending I want nationalized this da 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 we still are seen um, and I don't I don't think all of our even our sort of most progressive lefty politicians do a great job at navigating this we we are seen as basically as offering a kind of uh, heightened more aggressive version of what the Democrats are doing. Yeah. So we're, we stand for sure, we stand for $15 minimum wage, but also three times the scolding, you know, about yeah, yeah. your personal habits or whatever. We stand for government health care, but also twice the judgment. Um, anyway, yeah. so it's not a great position because it's, there's no real alternative as far as I can see, you know, structurally in terms of for, for us. But that's where, at least for a little while, that's where things stand. Um, I mean, I don't
0: want to do this podcast, we don't know what the result is yet, you know, we yeah. don't know what's going to happen next, and just completely smother everyone with pessimism. I do also yeah. want to point out that, you know, that what was it, it was something like uh, 26 of 30 DSA endorsed candidates, you know, won during this election, there have been, I think it was, I saw in Oregon, there was a big legalization Bill that was passed, or something, or or referendum, or whatever it was that was passed, that basically means that they're now legalizing a bunch of different possession of a bunch of different drugs. The fifteen dollar minimum wage in Florida. So there have been some indications that there is at least a some appetite for progressive policies. As we as we've said, and B potentially potentially one of the legacies of the Bernie moment will be that there will be these new very progressive socialist, in some cases, candidates who are able to take some leadership in the years to come. Do you think that we have any reason to be optimistic as a result of those trends?
2: Yeah, I mean, I do think that, you know, the, I mean, we'll see, I think a lot is actually really hanging on, you know, the, if you want to say the enhanced squad in in Congress, I mean, in terms of national politics, because there are some really nice, inspiring state victories too. um, But I think front lines are going to be, you know, you had, you, you know, you, in addition to the, you know AOC. Ilhan Omar, Rashid Tlaib, you now have, you know, Cori Bush, Jamal Bowman, and I I don't know, you know, and they did cruise to victory last night. And so that's, that's good. They're going to be in there. Like I said, I still hope that what we get from them is some sense of a project that's independent from being like the Democrats only more so. Which I don't think, unfortunately, I don't think is totally clear, even from, you know, somebody like AOC, yeah. who, you know, I love, but who is playing a kind of coalition game with the Democrats. And I understand yeah. you know the logic of that, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if the messaging from this group is basically like, we want the Democrats to be the Democrats, but just, you know, more of it and, and, and harder and fiercer and more, more Democrat, You know, we are the Democrats based. I just worry that that estranges this wing of the left, which Mm. is now a little bit more nationally prominent, away from this broader working class electorate that is very divided and, you know, doesn't help any any project of trying to revive class politics. So, okay, but you wanted optimism, I think. But I think there is an opportunity for that. And here's my thing. I think I think in the lieu of the pandemic the poll that you saw, you know, from Fox, we've got to hit Medicare for all harder than ever, not because it's going to happen, but it has to be the messaging tool. It's the thing that everybody knows is the right thing. And, and, you know, Trump voters, a lot of Trump voters know it's the right thing. And AOC and Bush and and Bowman and the rest, I think also see that and know that. And I hope that they make that, they tie themselves to that mast and and it, it, it allows, it's a really convenient way to distinguish yourself politically from the democratic establishment, which is not willing to do that yet. So I hope that we get a lot of, you know, hammering that home as a messaging device. It's like, this is what the left stands for. That is different. It isn't just, you know, we want, you know, more workplace trainings for you. You know, we want better trainings for you. We actually want, no, we actually want material redistribution yeah. led by a democratically empowered state. That's mm-hmm. what we want. Okay. Boom. We don't, we, you know, so we don't just want, you know, you know, to do the Democratic coalition times 10. We want, you know, to, to, to do the have-nots versus the haves. So there's some positive in, in, in indications there. I do really, I'm a big fan of Cory Bush and Jamal Bowman. I think they add um, not just left-wing oomph, but in some ways working-class oomph in yeah. that coalition. So we'll see. You know, the results were dispiriting, though, for the idea of, you know, winning over working-class voters. You know, to, to to the Democrats, it's all, yeah. it's going to be a hard road.
0: Well, I mean, of course, it, it's hardly surprising, is it? Like, I I think the most powerful thing I've seen so far was um a British journalist, Owen Jones, tweeted out this video from Tucker Carlson. I don't know if you saw it, where he'd done his election night piece to camera, and he was basically saying, you know, this look at this town in I don't exactly know where it was, you know, um somewhere in America. <laughs> it's a very big place.
2: Grace, you're contemplating. Um, the vast kind of blankness of america there
0: literally yeah <laughs> it's just like somewhere probably in the middle i'm not, yeah. I'm not Maybe sure. in,
2: you know indie soda or something yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> one yeah. of those places yeah. that's just a square that was one of the things i found super weird I Was i oh yeah. just forget that they're just squares just like <laughs> just how did squares. they design this just
2: <laughs> like a bunch of surveyors, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, but no, anyway, there was this amazing video that basically said, "Look, look, this town, there are a bunch of people here who 've basically been forgotten, ignored by political elites in d c as a result they 've been killing themselves like en mass from opioid overdoses. The Democrats have nothing to say about that they 've been told over and over again that Trump is evil, that they 're evil for liking Trump, that the only people who like Trump are insane." and look at them turning out at this rally in their thousands to come and watch Trump. And it was quite, you know, it's its Tucker Carlson, right? So, you know, whatever. But it was effective messaging. And it does speak to the fact that there is this sense of a, and you see it in the in the UK Labour Party and in the Dems as well, that there are what have traditionally been parties that were supposed to i mean less less of a case in in the u.s but supposed to have some sort of ability to represent organized labor have just ended up representing the professional managerial classes people with college degrees who as a result of demographic change, as a result of urbanization and rising inequality, have absolutely no ability to understand what is going on in huge swathes of the country that they live in, even though they dominate the media, they dominate politics, they dominate business and the economy. And it just seems to me like failing to speak to that and actually failing to answer it with a call for a deepening of democracy, right? Which is, I think, what so many people want when they look at our politics. And I mean, in the UK, you had this whole take back control thing, which was obviously about saying, for the last 40 years, working people have been shut out of power in all the major institutions that affect their lives. So it's hardly surprising that working class voters didn't come out in support of Democrats who were saying, give me your vote and I'll look after you. I'll give you a pat on the head and you won't have this horrible fascist in power anymore.
2: Yeah, it's true. I mean, and there's some, you know, there's some Republicans who really want to who really want to make this happen. Now, I, you know, Josh Hawley, the Missouri senator was sort of semi ish state right there in the middle for you, uh, Grace. <laughs> uh, uh, did tweet Republican did did tweet something like we are a working class party now you know in response to this and you know I mean the obvious answer is well what have you ever done or what do you ever propose to do for the working class and the answer mm. is all except posture but I think that there's a wing of the party it's still definitely in the minority that really wants to posture in that direction and that. That, that looks at some of the results, like in, in, in Florida, Texas and elsewhere, where you had Latino voters, you know, surprisingly working class Latino voters, mm. surprisingly breaking towards, towards Trump, or at least much more so than four years ago, especially men, um, you know, the gender gap really, really growing here. Um, so working class men and, you know, in a way that... that dulls the impact of race because you see black men moving in this direction also again from a much lower base. Mm. But there there are some people on the right who basically want to do a rainbow populism of the right. Yeah, that like, is, it, it is nationalist and xenophobic to some extent, and as a sort of conservative cultural affect. But you know protects American workers regardless of skin color. And I think that that messaging we're going to have to. I think the the you know liberals and progressives in in America are going to have to get used to that. It, you know it's not the dominant message in the Republican Party right now, um, which is still you know suffused with all sorts of white nostalgia. But the truth is the coalitions are shifting in that direction in the last two elections actually. And liberals and progressives are going to have to figure out what to do when you know they see not just the white working class but non-white parts of the yeah. working class flipping away from them. Maybe that will activate them a little bit more. I don't know.
0: I mean, you see the same thing in the UK to an extent with the kind of Dominic Cummings and slightly Boris Johnson wing of the party saying, let's ditch austerity. Let's go for a kind of like blue Labour style economic and social and political nationalism. It does seem like it's reflective of something of a split in capital at the moment based on the recognition that... Part of those parties want a kind of deepening and continuation of the neoliberalism that we've seen over the last several decades. But the other half recognize that we're in this very, very deep crisis, which is affecting both labor and to an extent capital. I mean, when you look at productivity, when you look at the the state of the economy at the moment and the fragility of the economy, that there is potentially a way of reorganizing the capitalist state and orienting it towards consistently and constantly just pumping money into. The economy that benefits the private sector and that benefits big business and that benefits big finance and that potentially being a kind of hegemonic and, and winning coalition.
2: Yeah, and I think um, I mean we'll see what happens. I at last I looked, stocks were up. Yeah. Um, this morning in the U.S., I think divided government is something they love because it basically suggests that there will be you know n- the only compromises that pass. The divided government are those that basically are favorable to Wall Street. So whatever happens, is gonna it, either whether it's whether capital moves in that direction or whether it, it moves you know back in a little bit of a more traditional neoliberal uh, mm. direction in the short term. First, I mean, I could see versions of that happening in terms of trade and China negotiations. And yeah. So on. Either way, it's good for finance right now. Yeah. They're Especially not, they're when you go to central worried. bank,
0: just showering money everywhere.
2: Yeah. They're not worried about, I mean, look, it, the, it, you know, there is a question about whether Republicans will insist on austerity, you know, because, you know, if they do hold the Senate, they, they still might. Yeah. And, and, and that would be bad, obviously. And especially because they want to, tank Biden now. You know, they'll, they'll want to just murder his agenda as soon as they can. So that's a bottleneck. And I guess, you know, in, in a certain sense, that is bad. That will be bad for Wall Street. But I think in the long run, you know, they, they're, they're sort of confident as they were in the Obama years, that things that get through a Republican Senate, whatever does make it yeah. through a Republican Senate and a Democratic presidency will not threaten, but probably, you know, enhance their, their standing.
0: Yeah, totally. And economic stagnation in the U.S., doesn't, as we've seen, necessarily affect Wall Street. Wow. I mean, American capital is so internationalized, they generate so much of yeah. their profits from what goes on abroad and also from just the extraction of economic rents. And when you have a central bank that is literally willing to just continuously prop up and inflate asset prices in service of the interests of investors and the wealthy, it doesn't really matter if like the rest of your economy and indeed society is falling apart because the average person hasn't had a wage rise and A decade or more so yeah i mean it definitely seems as though you're right i saw today that yeah stocks are up but um bond yields are down on the expectation that there won't be some sort of stimulus program so you know there won't be lots more borrowing to fund something that like along the lines of biden's climate proposals do you think that's probably the case
2: I think that's probably the case. And I think projecting forward, I mean, that's a real risk that, you know, you yeah. have a crippled Biden who comes in without the Senate. He'll be the first president, you know, I think, I guess, since George Bush, who d- didn't have unified control in his first two years. in yeah.
0: office,
2: Trump had it. Obama had it. Bush briefly had it. And then one Democrat switched. But he had his post 9-11 rally where he yeah. you know, consolidated control. So he he was able to do a big chunk of his agenda in his first term. Bill Clinton had it, actually, in the early 90s. He had unified control and was able to do some things. So Biden will come in without the Senate. Obviously, there's a Supreme Court also you know, yeah. looming in the darkness behind him. But he, hes it's really a, a big question about what kind of agenda he can even half manage. And so then what does the country look like in the midterms? What does the country look like in 2024? Do we see this you know, revived Republican populism? I mean, one small note of hope is some of this residual and kind of unanticipated strength in the Republican turnout is about Trump himself is about just mm. this celebrity factor that, you know, I just watched that final video uh, on Tuesday yesterday morning and it was, the, I had been feeling really confident looking at the polls and da da That last closing ad of him, just, you know, goofily, gooberishly dancing to YMCA, yeah, yeah, yeah. just doing his little, you know, his, his one move, but he just kind of had, he exudes this sort of like raw energy and just kind of like joy of life in, in some weird way demented way, even though I, you know, I think it's very far from his actual experience of life, but he he somehow yeah. conveys that in in a in way that he's a celebrity. I mean, he's like Ronald Reagan. He's not a traditional politician. And I just wonder if even if you have a, a Josh Hawley type who actually might be more disciplined rhetorically than Trump, who might actually pursue the Bannonite, yeah. maybe Wisconsinite on a policy level and be more focused on buildings, but he doesn't have any of that charisma. He doesn't have any of that carnival. He doesn't have any of that, like, get up and fuck them kind of energy. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. I wonder if you can really juice the turnout just for the Republicans. You know, we saw in 2018 in the midterms, Trumpism without Trump, you know, flopped. Yeah. So, you know, will Trumpism, I think that is a small note of potential optimism going forward is even though I think people are acting as if, you know, they're going to come back meaner and badder than ever. I don't know if they don't have Trump himself that they'll quite have the oomph. On the other hand, Trump could run again in 2024, of course.
0: Yeah. I mean, it does seem as though, you know, we're obviously in this this deep crisis, people are very uncertain about the future, about what is in store for them and the, and the country. And there basically are two options, right? Either you go for an authoritarian strongman that you can invest all your hopes in and say, no, this guy will fix it. Or there is this option of thinking, right, well, we can fix it if we work together and if we build this movement and that seems like the only way forward for the left at the moment there needs to be leadership and there needs to be this movement so what should the U.S. left be doing now because there's gonna probably be you know Biden as president but there's gonna be deadlock and we're in the middle of this massive crisis how do we get organized and what should we be focusing on
2: I mean it's the same old tired answer I guess but from my perspective on the left I mean Bernie gave us a head start. Bernie put a bunch of ideas on the map that were off the map and got us mm-hmm. talking about Medicare for all, got us talking about $15 minimum wage. And those discourse victories, I think, are real victories because they're victories that now exist in the hearts and minds of tens, hundreds of millions of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't have anything like an organization to sort of, yeah. you know, actually instantiate those things or, 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 or build them into a, a working mass politics outside burning. We had this one guy. So we have a few promising people maybe in in Congress and so on. We have some demographics and youth on our side. We have the fact that neither nationalist populism nor, you know, sort of centrist neoliberalism can actually address these material problems. You know, that's kind of on our side. You know, those problems are still going to be there for us to talk about. And then I think you know, but but we don't have the organization. So I think, yeah, yeah I think we need to be, um, you know, building at every level. And I think we need to be, you know, one thing that I, I'd really like to push is, I think that even Bernie didn't do as well as I think he could have. We need to connect ourselves to the labor movement. I mean, yeah. I think actually... Kooky, how little connection DSA has to any any actual organized labor. I mean, I'm sure it it, it must seem that way to you, um, where all sort of left politics in Britain are still connected through you know trade unionism in some way. It's not at all the case here. I do think there will be more with some generational change, I think there will be more openings for that mm. uh, potentially. But I hope that the left actually seizes them and, and and doesn't just continue to, I mean, the left talks a lot about unions now, which is good. But I don't think we've done a lot of acting um, yeah. in an organized capacity to sort of make labor and organized labor, not just a thing that is also good alongside, you know, denouncing settler colonialism. I don't think we've actually made that a political priority. And I think it needs to be up there at the at the top of the organizational list. So and I think there are there are there are openings to to sort of connect left struggles and labor struggles, you know, especially with, you know, with workers under 40 that, you know, the, the union leaderships are often, you know, hostile to the left. I understand that. But I think that shouldn't preclude real efforts and not just in the writing room of your favorite website, blue collar workers, too. I think it's 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 a it's a missed opportunity for DSA so far. To, to not really be prioritizing those connections and sort of saying what are the relationships that say a an electoral left and an activist left can have with a, a labor left
0: couldn't agree more um yeah we face the same the same problem in the uk i think we will leave it there and yeah we are keeping everything crossed for you know biden to scrape through and for Socialism to make a massive comeback over the next five years. A and, uh, 10 year
2: plan. I, I think, I think, Grace, we got to think it's a 10 year plan. Yeah. I know that that's not everyone has 10 years. I get it. I get it. But I think, you know, a lot of people will still be around in 10 years. So I think we need to be hopefully uh, you and I that, still
0: will. Yeah. <laughs>